Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, hello, hello again, and welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. Thank you, my girl, for introducing me. I'm Shannon Riley, a Shakespeare devotee. I am a fan of Shakespeare. I don't claim to be a scholar, but I do certainly love Shakespeare's work, and I'd love to come to you every Sunday on the 8th to talk a little bit about the world's greatest playwright. Now, if you've been following along, you know that I'm on the middle of that that quest I have to go through each one of Shakespeare's plays, one show at a time, in the order that they were written, or roughly so, and talk about the plays individually. And today, we're up to Shakespeare's first romantic comedy, and actually, I consider it more of a bromance, the very interesting play, Two Gentlemen of Verona. Now, for purposes of what I'm talking about today, I'm setting the date here around 1594. We don't really know when this play was written. We don't really know when a lot of these plays were written. This seems to be at a grouping of plays during a very prolific time for Shakespeare when he was writing plays, and so that's where I'm going to drop it. Some scholars have dropped it in different time periods, and I'm going to talk about that as we go forward. But before I go any further, I wanted to once again tell you that if you've got any questions about anything I'm talking about on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, or you have an idea for a show or a comment you'd like to make, you can reach me at shannonjreilly.com. Just send me an email to shannon at shannonjreilly.com. I'll happily answer your email right here online. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from any of you out there. Also, if you're in, looking for some fun plays to take a look at, you'll find them listed at shannonjreilly.com as well. I'm very excited. As a matter of fact, this very weekend, I'm going to be watching one of my plays, Morbid Curiosity, on stage again with the River City Players in Leavenworth, Kansas. So I can't wait to get over there and see that. But now, for right now, I'm going to be talking to you about Shakespeare's play, Two Gentlemen of Verona. Now, this is a comedy by William Shakespeare. It's his earliest romantic comedy that we know of. And... As I said, there's argument about when it was written. But I have a little bit of a personal stake with uh, the show. I actually worked on a production of Two Gentlemen of Verona with the Dallas Shakespeare Festival down in Dallas, Texas, summer of 1989, I believe, right before I finished up my master's degree at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I was assistant director on the production. Uh, the director had this very unique idea. As I look back on it, I think he was pretty courageous to do it. He wanted to set it, uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, in a mythical city of Verona, Texas, in the 1920s during the oil boom, and that Milan was actually Cuba. And that's where Proteus and Valentine end up going to Milan in the play. And so he set them in Cuba, where they run into Che Quivera. Very interesting production. 
Not all of it worked at all, but one of the things he did that I really liked was uh, he hired a rockabilly band. And just like in Shakespeare's time where there would have been musicians on stage, he put a rockabilly band right on stage and they performed live rockabilly music in between the scene changes. And it was quite an audience pleaser. So I know a lot about Two Gentlemen Vernon from personal experience, but I'm going to talk about first the play itself. And as always, we start with... And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. That's right, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. Thank you, my boy. And the Shakespeare Quote of the Week is again, of course, from Two Gentlemen of Verona. And it's, Time is the nurse and breeder of all good. Act 3, Scene 1. Time is the nurse and breeder of all good. That in time, you feel better about things that you have gone through. And isn't that, most of the time, very, very true? So how about I give you a quick synopsis of the play? First of all, our play begins with two gentlemen of Verona. One is Valentine and one is Proteus, best friends who swear their fraternity for all time together at the opening of the play. Now, these two friends have gotten together because Valentine himself is about to depart from Verona to Milan, where his father has decided he needs to expand his experiences and experience the world outside of Verona. So he's sending him off to Milan to make a man of him. Now, Proteus wants to go along, and and Valentine wants him to come with him on his trip to Milan. But unfortunately, Proteus can't bring himself to leave. You see, he's fallen in love with the beautiful Julia who lives in Verona, and he can't possibly imagine departing from her. So Valentine wishes him luck in his love and departs by boat for Milan. Now, in the meantime, Julia is talking with her maid, Lucentia. Now, Lucentia says that she believes that Proteus has fallen in love with her, and she, of course, feigns that she doesn't really care, but that's probably not true. And then Lucentia produces a letter that she got from Speed, who happens to be a servant serving Valentine, and Speed has a letter in Proteus' hand declaring his love for Julia. Julia feigns like she doesn't care, it's ridiculous, she doesn't believe that such a letter exists, and she tells her to take the letter, rip it up, and throw it on the ground. So, Lucentia does, and leaves. Immediately, Julia throws herself on the ground, starts kissing the pieces and tries to put them back together, and finds, indeed, Proteus professing his love. And she then, in turn, professes her love for him to the audience. Now, Valentine has a servant, and this servant is by the name of Launce. And Launce has a dog, and Launce's dog is the biggest hit of the play, I think. Launce's dog is named Crab. And Lance gives a very funny soliloquy to the audience about an event that happened with his old dog, Crab, who was getting on in years. It seems that Crab ran into the Lord's house and ran under the dining room table where he let loose a very foul smell. Everybody screamed, what cur has done this? What dog is responsible? Drag that dog out and whip that dog for the offensive odor it has created. So poor Lance, trying to protect his dog, Follows the man who whips dogs outside and says, Excuse me, sir, do you mean to whip that dog? And he indeed says, Yes, I do mean to do so. And he says, Please don't, for it was I who caused the offensive odor, and it is I who should be beaten. And so Lance takes a beating for his dog. It's really a very funny soliloquy when given, because it's this wonderful story of a man who loves his dog so much, but the dog doesn't seem to show as much affection back, and it drives him crazy. When produced, and produced with a live dog, it is hilarious to watch. But it's off the topic of the story of the show. Now, meanwhile, Proteus and Julia have gotten together and profess their love to each other. But unfortunately, Proteus's father has decided that he too should go to Milan to stretch his wings and learn more about what it is to be a man. So he's sending him away to find his friend Valentine in Milan. 
They profess their love to each other and share rings. They trade rings as a sign of their devotion to each other. And off Proteus goes to Milan. Now once he arrives in Milan, he runs, of course, into his good friend, Valentine. Valentine tells him that he has met the most beautiful woman in the world. Her name is Sylvia. She's a daughter of a duke, and he loves her intensely, and he must have her. Not shortly after that speech, enters Sylvia, this beautiful young woman, and immediately Proteus, who has just sworn his devotion to Julia, is immediately submitted and decides he will have Sylvia for himself. There's a problem with Sylvia in that she's the daughter of a duke, and the duke has sworn that she will marry a count by the name of Thurio, who was very foppish, ineffectual, very wealthy, rather effeminate man. Valentine hates Thurio, but not near as much as Sylvia does, and she does not want to marry him. Unfortunately, Sylvia's father, the Duke, knows that she doesn't want to marry Thurio, and that she's in love with Valentine. So every night, the Duke locks her in a high tower to keep her away from Valentine and safe until the wedding day with Thurio. Valentine confesses to Proteus he is going to climb through a cable rope that he has created, up that tower and steal away with Sylvia. Not wanting him to have Sylvia, Proteus decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands and he instead goes to the Duke and tells him that tonight Valentine has a plan to steal his daughter. Valentine of course gets caught by the Duke and his men and he's immediately banished and sent out into the forest. In the forest outside of Milan, he is completely terrified but also alone and decries that he cannot possibly live without Sylvia when he runs into a band of outlaws. He claims that he is a gentleman, and they claim they are all exiled gentlemen. Valentine says he was not only exiled, he was exiled for killing a man ruthlessly. So afraid of the reputation that Valentine has, the outlaws immediately name him their captain and put him in charge of their merry band. Meanwhile, Proteus starts to make his move on Sylvia, who wants nothing to do with him, and is missing her beautiful, wonderful Valentine, who Proteus tells her was surely killed in the woods. Meanwhile, back in Verona, Julia has decided she can't wait for Proteus to come back. She convinces her maid to dress her as a boy and disguise her as Sebastian so that she can go and offer her services as a page to Proteus and keep an eye on her love in Milan. When she arrives in Milan, of course, she finds out that Proteus is madly in love with Sylvia and that he immediately hires this young man, Sebastian, who is Julia in disguise, and has her deliver love letters to Sylvia. She can't stand doing it, but she does it. And Sylvia refuses to hear the love letters, complaining that indeed she is madly, still madly in love with Valentine, and she hates Proteus for denouncing his love in such a horrible way that she knows he has left behind in Verona. Sylvia is not going to sit around and end up married to Thurio. So she escapes with the help of a lord into the woods, and immediately they are accosted by the same band of outlaws. The lord, terrified that he will become a victim, runs and leaves Sylvia to their tender mercy. They're about to take him to their captain when Proteus, along with Julia, disguised as Sebastian, comes upon them. He fights off the outlaws and chases them away, but Sylvia will have nothing to do with Proteus and takes off in the woods, being chased by Proteus and by Sebastian. This was all witnessed by Valentine, who is hiding in the dark, and he follows after them. Now, they all get separated in the woods, and Proteus comes upon Sylvia and grabs her and says that he loves her dearly and he must have her. She refuses, and then Proteus does something that is quite off-putting. He says to her, I will force thee yield to my desire, intimating he's just about to rape her. Just as Proteus moves in on Sylvia, jumping from the darkness is Valentine, who pushes him back. 
he is followed behind by Sebastian, who immediately faints and falls onto the ground. Valentine says he hates Proteus for what he has become, and Proteus says, no, no, don't hate me, for I, no one hates me more than I hate myself for what I have done to you, my friend Valentine, and what I threaten to do to Sylvia. And then he looks on the ground, sees the Sebastian lying there, pulls off her disguise, and realizes that it is indeed Julia. He wakes her and professes his love, and says he is so sorry for all that he has done. Now Valentine does something very strange. He says to Proteus, I forgive you. And he says, all that was mine in Sylvia, I give to thee. Seeming to suggest that I now give you my beautiful bride, Sylvia. Proteus refuses it, of course, and says no. No one is greater than his love for the beautiful Julia. About then, the Duke enters. He and Thurio have been captured by this band of outlaws and have brought them to them in this place. Thurio, seeing Sylvia, immediately claims that she is his and demands that she return to him. Valentine threatens to kill him should he take one step towards her. Thurio immediately requites his love and says, Never mind, sorry I bothered you. So disappointed is the Duke in the weakness and cowardice of Thurio that he relents and allows not only Valentine to marry his daughter Sylvia, he will even preside over the wedding of Proteus and Julia, and he turns to the outlaws and says, All of your sins are forgiven as well. You may return into the city with my blessing. And they all return to Milan to celebrate the joining of these two loving couples. That's the story of Two Gentlemen of Verona, and it is fraught with problems. We're going to talk about those problems on the other side of Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, where we talk about what is really meant by the lines that are given there, and the possibility that this ending is what kept Two Gentlemen of Verona from ever attending any great status in modern Shakespearean literature. We're going to be back on the other half of the break with a look in depth at The Two Gentlemen of Verona by William Shakespeare. You're listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF, Digital Radio, 78Live.com. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> 785 Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 785live.com. I'm Shannon Riley, and today we're talking about Two Gentlemen of Verona, one of Shakespeare's earliest plays. Now, there is quite an argument about when this play was written. I, as I said, I'm putting it in about 1594, which was during a period of great writing for Shakespeare. This is when he was doing an awful lot of writing all by himself on stage, no longer working with other collaborators and really working on his craft as a playwright. However, some people place this as a play that's even earlier than that. Some scholars believe it was a play he wrote before he even ever came to London that he may have brought up with him from Stratford. The only reason they say this, however, at least in terms of the research I did, was because it's so immature of a play that they can't believe he wrote anything before it. It has a very odd structure. It's very ambiguous as far as the comedy goes. It's not terribly funny. The characters are not really well drawn out. The funniest moment in it is Lance and his dog, which is a very funny moment. However, it has nothing to do with the plot of the story. It doesn't advance anything in the story and seems to be completely added on, as if at the end he thought, well, I better put something funny in there and I guess I'll use a dog. So there, there isn't a lot of really crafty writing that happens in this play. So 
Because of that, a lot of scholars believe it's even older than any of the other plays and was his first play. I simply don't think so. Most scholars, at least in terms of the research that I did, still say that the very first was his first tetralogy of Henry VI. And I do believe that this is true too. I also believe that Comedy of Errors probably came before it. And this one is very close to the play I'm going to talk about next week, which is Taming of the Shrew. That's very close in terms of the times of which they were done. But I, I think that this play was maybe possibly put here because of its subject matter. It was probably done very early on in his career and probably done during this time of writing. And I say that because there was a need to prove himself as a writer. He was turning plays out just as fast as he humanly could while I was also acting on stage. And not all of them are going to be good. Make no mistake, I think Two Gentlemen of Verona is an incredibly weak play for a number of reasons. But I simply can't believe that it's his first play. I do think, though, it does show immaturity in its writing. One of the things that's pointed out is the fact that when there's more than three people on stage, it seems like Shakespeare can't keep track of them. He seems to uh, not be able to give lines evenly out throughout the scenes. You have characters who just sit, stand quietly with nothing to say for long periods of time because we're focused on a conversation between two or three individuals. There's that, and there's also an inconsistency. First of all, anyone who believes that Shakespeare traveled to Italy to learn all the things he did to write plays needs to take a look at Two Gentlemen of Verona. He says quite clearly in Two Gentlemen of Verona that in order to leave from Verona and go to Milan, you have to board a boat. These two cities are landlocked. There's no water to travel on between the two of them. Secondly, even when Proteus arrives at, in Milan, he is greeted by Speed, who is a servant of Valentine, who says, Welcome to Padua, an entirely different place altogether. It's very inconsistent in its language. But you see in this play themes that Shakespeare is going to return to in subsequent plays. Women dressing as men to follow after and to, to deliver love letters when they don't want to deliver those love letters. That comes back to in Twelfth Night, much later in his career. You also see the trading of rings and this fidelity of brothers. A lot of Shakespeare's early plays were very male-dominated and male-centric in terms of their writing. It is important to note there is no reference to it being performed during Shakespeare's lifetime. We do know that it was, though. We just don't know when. It appears in a list of plays that were written by Shakespeare in a writing of 1598, and it's one of many that, uh, plays that Shakespeare had written by that period. But we don't know where it was performed. No record has existed for it. And it wasn't published. That doesn't mean it wasn't a good play to Shakespeare's mind or to his company's mind. They often did not publish plays that they thought were really good because once you did, another company could buy that published play and produce it themselves. But it also doesn't mean they loved it. They could have thought it wasn't even worthy of publication. It was at least considered worthy enough by Hemings and Condell to include it in the first folio after Shakespeare's death. So there was some value to Two Gentlemen of Verona in its time. But in modern age, it's not looked upon as a real classic of Shakespeare's time. Not only is it the immature writing that I talked about before, but it's just the language in and of itself and that end scene. Now, first of all, when the Puritans took over England during the English Civil War, all theaters were closed. And they remained closed for a considerable amount of time. When they opened back up again, Shakespeare was one of the first playwrights that they started to reinvest and reproduce. However, they often didn't produce Shakespeare as Shakespeare. They would rewrite his scenes. They would add scenes to take away scenes. There's a very famous scene 
in Macbeth that I think has nothing to do with the original story, but that's another side story. But they added or took away things so that even the very first writing of appearance of Shakespeare's play Two General Verona being performed was in 1762 at the Drury Lane Theater, and it was not exactly as Shakespeare had written it. An actual production of the show using Shakespeare's complete text wasn't until at least 1784. So it took a long time before Two General Verona made it to the stage in what would be considered the modern era. But even today, it is one of the least produced plays of all of Shakespeare's canon. And one of it has to do with that end scene. First of all, you have Proteus, very immature character who professes his love in one moment, immediately sees another woman, and drops that love for her. Okay? He's flighty. He's a kid. He's maybe 17, 18 years old. But nevertheless, for him to threaten to force himself on Sylvia when he gets her alone in the woods is not something we can really take well with our modern sensibility. And I can't believe even in the Elizabethan period, the idea of raping somebody was just okay. It's just not. And so that's one problem with it is that in play. But even more difficult for us as a modern audience is to hear Valentine say that phrase, all that isn't mine in Sylvia, I give to thee, when he forgives Proteus. What does that mean? Is he saying, please, take my bride, take my girl, you can have her, to show that I have forgiven you? Some scholars believe that's exactly what it means. And they point to it as this misogynistic side of Shakespeare that particularly existed in his younger years. This male-dominated drive where women were nothing more than possessions of the men around them. And maybe he did mean that. I don't know. None of us were there. I've said many, many times that you need to take Shakespeare as a product of when he was written. And certainly, in the Elizabethan period, in the late 1590s, women were not of an equal to men, even though that England itself was ruled by a queen. So, he could have meant that. But there is an argument that we're misunderstanding that phrase. All that is mine in Sylvia, I give to thee. Did he really mean, I give you Sylvia? Or did he mean that all the love I feel for Sylvia... I feel for you. That's an entirely different meaning. That takes away this sense of, here, take her, and turns it much more into, I forgive you, I love you, you're as important to me as this woman who I intend to marry. This is not uncommon with Elizabethan men. This idea of loving another man so much, as much as your wife, as much as the mother of your children. Elizabethan sensibilities about male fraternal love, even the love between brothers, the love between men who know each other and are friends, is professed much deeper than it is in modern society. Elizabethan men who liked each other as friends, who were best friends, would walk down the street holding hands. Now, I've never done that with my best friend, and I'm not about to. He looks like he has sweaty hands. But nevertheless, it's an entirely different sentiment. So when something so flowery as all that is in Sylvia I give to thee could indeed possibly mean I'm not saying take my bride, I'm saying I'd love you as much as I love her. So there is a different sentiment that exists with Elizabethan fraternal love. And you see this again and again starting to play out in Shakespeare's plays for quite a long time until... Well, uh, the death of his father, the death of some of his brothers, and the death of his son. That's when you see his plays turn from a very male-dominated voice to a male voice 
that now questions the love of a man for a woman, now says, I need this woman in my life. How do I understand her? How do I treat her? Keep in mind, Shakespeare himself got married in 1582 when he was 18 years old. He's gone and out of Stratford-on-Avon shortly after 1584. He fathered a child and then two twins and then left. He hasn't been around his bride more than a, a couple of weeks at a time, once a year, and maybe twice a year, and maybe sometimes he would miss years. So his attention to the female members of the family, for certainly female members who could not read and weren't even aware of what he was doing in London or could react to his plays or his sonnets. So he had a very male-dominated sense of the world, as all Elizabethan men did, even though they had a female queen. She herself said, I may be a feeble woman, but I have the heart of a king in my breast and an English king too. She herself often referred to herself, Queen Elizabeth did, as a great prince because she knew how feeble and low the image of a woman was to the Elizabethan people. So this end scene that causes problems for modern society of not only Proteus attempting or seeming to attempt to rape Sylvia, but also the fact that Sylvia's paramour would then turn around and say, take her. This is not necessarily how it goes. Even though I'm defending what is said written here, I gotta point out, this is not a strong play. It's actually one of Shakespeare's smallest cast plays. There's very few speaking lines in it devoted to anyone but the main characters. And at the end of the play, the women have practically nothing to say in the final scene of the play. They kind of just sit there and let it all happen around them. This is more a sign of the immaturity of the playwright, I think, than it is to do with anything else. But it also is a sign of this play just not being very good. But I want to touch on one final note before I leave Two Gentlemen Verona. And that is, I came across several listings calling Two Gentlemen Verona one of Shakespeare's problem plays. This is not a problem play. Problem plays is a term used for some of Shakespeare's plays that basically are just too ambiguous as to what they are. Are they comedies or are they dramas? Are they meant to be played dark? Or are they meant to be light and funny? Or are they meant to be both? To Elizabethan audiences, an idea of a tragic comedy or a combat tragedy or a serial comedy, which is what we have today, was unheard of. And some of Shakespeare's plays really cross that line, measure for measure, as you like it. Uh, some of these plays are just too dark in their main body of text to be called comedies, but too light in the end to be called dramas. One of... Well, not one, but there were a couple of places that I went when I was looking into this play a little bit more for this broadcast. List, this is a problem play because men, or I'm sorry, women had to dress up as men to play other characters. This is not a problem in Elizabethan audiences. It wasn't a problem for them to understand at all. Keep in mind, everyone who was on that stage was a man, even the women. Every single show Shakespeare did was cross-dressing. Young boys played the women. Women weren't allowed on stage. So the idea to say simply because Sylvia starts as a woman and dresses as a man, meaning she's a young boy who dresses as a woman and then dresses as a man, makes it a problem play, means nearly every play Shakespeare did is a problem play. And it was not a problem play to Elizabethans. Take a look at Two Gentlemen of Verona. There's some very interesting videos online if you want to check it out and catch some of uh, the scenes. And watch the play if you have time to do it or even read it yourself. 
I gotta say, it's one of my least favorites, and it really does show that Shakespeare himself is still not the accomplished writer he will one day become. But it must have been well enough received in Elizabethan England for it to continue on and be included in the first folio. That's my show for this week. Next week, I'm going to be talking about The Taming of the Shrew, which is our final script during the 1594 time frame. I hope you all come back. It's my pleasure to come and talk to you every day. I'm Shannon on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Join me next Sunday, and in between times, remember, keep it barred to the bone. Seven Eight Five Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now, and we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com, and thanks for tuning in.